Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Property. I'm Peter Switzer. And tonight we look at the migration of Australians from capital cities to the regions and we try to work out how that will affect house prices with propertyology.com.au's Simon Presley. Simon pinpoints the regions that are booming and are bound to boom going forward. And if house prices are going to rise by 30% over the next three years, as the RBA thinks is possible, we really need to believe that the RBA, when it says that interest rates could stay around the current levels for the next three years. Is that possible? We see what the bond expert Ying Yi and Cheng of Kulabar Capital thinks about where rates are going. Ying Yi and runs my Switzer higher yield fund and needs to be on top of where rates are going. Her and her boss, Chris Joy, would be some of the best predictors of where rates are going in this country. So I want to hear what she has to say. But before that, I want to share with you the latest economic story that is bound to be really crucial to what might happen to interest rates going forward and, of course, house prices over 2021. So the bottom line is, can Australians be optimistic about our economy? Because if you are optimistic about the economy, it's going to have a, a knock-on effect to house prices. So let's run through the data that you might not have seen in recent times, maybe because your media outlet doesn't think it's important to tell you what's actually going on in the economy. So first of all, the NAB Business Confidence Index rose from 4.7 points in December to 10. 10 is a good big number and is much higher than the long-term average of 5.1. Good sign that the business sector is starting to believe that the worst of the coronavirus is behind us. Now, business conditions actually measures what's going on right now. Now, the last reading from last month was a 28-month high of 15.8. It's gone down to 7.2, but that is still above the long-term average, and I suspect some of the problems of the, the recent lockdown from Melbourne didn't help that number. Now, the Westpac Consumer Confidence number in February went to 109.1. Now, this is the second highest reading in seven years. And get this, the index is now 14.2% above the pre-pandemic level in February 2020 and up 44.3% on the 29-year low we hit when the coronavirus was at its worst around April of last year. So think about this. You've got conditions that were just around 28-month highs. You've got consumer confidence at seven-year highs. These are very, very good readings for an economy going forward. Now, also, if the economy going to go well in the future, you want to think that people are moving into jobs. When people move into jobs, they want to buy houses. Skilled internet vacancies rose by 1.6% in January. That's up 11.1%, and vacancies are at 19-month high. You can see that the worst of the coronavirus is miles behind us because we're even you know, getting to levels 19 months ago. So that is a very good sign. And there's more economic data out there worth understanding to try and work out whether you can be positive about where house prices are going. And the national payroll jobs are now at a level we haven't seen for a year. That means that the coronavirus impact on payrolls, the hiring of people, has now been worked out of the economy. The number of actively trading businesses in the economy actually increased by 2% or 46,000 to 2 million or 2.4 million businesses. That's another good sign that the economy is starting to move back towards normalcy. Job ads as measured by SEEK rose by 4% are up 6.5% for the year. Remember, people with jobs want to buy homes. More people want to buy homes, house prices are going to be holding to going higher. 
We spent $350 billion on retail in 2020, up 6.2%, and the biggest calendar lift in a decade. That's another positive for uh, the outlook for the economy. Council approvals to build new homes rose by 10.9% in December, and that's a 33-month high. Another positive for the housing sector uh, and another good uh, reading to believe that housing and the prices of houses are heading up. The Australian Industry Group, the performance of construction index rose by 2.3 points to a three and a half year high, another positive for the housing sector. We also see that the services sector is growing. Sure, we're from 57 to 55.6, but any number over 50 means that the services sector, the biggest employer in the country, is expanding. Any number over 50 means it's expanding. And Craig James from Comsec said, after a strong V-shaped economic recovery, the Reserve Bank expects above normal growth, wait for it, to 2023. So if we're going above normal growth, you tend to get above normal demand for housing. And given the fact that Dr. Lowe, who's the boss of the RBA, is saying that interest rates are bound to be at these levels for three years, and he's doing this quantitative easing, which throws money basically at the banks to lend out, it's apparent that Dr. Lowe is trying to do what Mario Draghi did in Europe after the GFC. When he got that job as the boss of the EU central bank, he said, whatever it takes, I'm gonna do to get Europe to grow. And that's exactly what Dr. Lowe is trying to do after the coronavirus crash. And I found it really interesting. This is not really related to the housing sector, but you know, we're all worried about China and what China might do to us. Um, but it's interesting to see that the Australian wine exports fell only by 1% in, the, in December from a year ago, and the value of exports to Europe surged 22% to a decade high of $704 million. So even though China is a bit of a threat at the moment, it's, it's highly likely that we could actually find alternative markets in many of the areas where China can be pretty punishing. Okay, so that's, as you can see, is a pretty rosy outlook, all based on the numbers that are coming through. A lot of those numbers are two, three year highs, decade highs, all very good signs that it is believable that we're going to get strong economic growth over the next two or three years, factor in low interest rates as the RBA has promised, and that sounds like a pretty good environment for house prices. And one last thing before I go to our first guest, have a look at this chart of house prices and unit prices over a 20 odd year period. You can see there, there's an upward tendency for house prices in this country. Sure, it can go sideways, sure, it might not go anywhere, but eventually the forces like migration, um, the power of the economy, Australia's, de Australia's demand for property all conspires to eventually push house prices up. So those people buying today, sure there might be some uh, coming off the boil in two or three years time, but eventually that long-term trend will, will reinstate itself and you'll be a, a beneficiary of what I think is a pretty good um, market to build wealth. Now let's catch up with Simon Presley from Propertyology, who's gonna talk about the boom in the regions and where you should be looking if you're thinking about going bush. Well, what we've seen is a, an enormous shift of uh, people from the capital cities to the regions. And the guy who's been watching it very carefully is Simon Presley, the founder of propertyology.com.au, who's uh, coming to us 
from a regional area, namely the Sunshine Coast and the beach, that wonderful beach called Noosa. How are you, Simon? Very well, Peter. Great to talk to you from God's country, my friend. <laughs> Isn't it funny? God hangs around lots of countries. He's in <laughs> he does. the Cronulla the Cronulla area there, and God's down there. Maybe there are a lot of gods, or God's just big on Maybe real, there are. big on real estate, mate. A very interesting story you've put out, and I want to cover that with you. Tell us about this net movement of people out of capital cities to the regions. And it's not just something that started the coronavirus, is it? No, it's not. It has certainly the coronavirus. The regions have popped a lot more than normal, I guess, media publicity because more people are, are contemplating a regional relocation or a holiday in, in, in the region than, than what they would have been without COVID. Um, but the official ABS data that was just released a couple of weeks ago showed that the net change in what we call internal migration, so we're dealing with the existing Australian resident population, our capital cities have actually declined by 134,000 people over the last five years. So that's not all COVID. Now, COVID has certainly accelerated the shift, um, but it's a shift that's been unfolding for quite some time. What's happened over the last nine months because of the coronavirus? I think uh, things like lockdowns and, and the fear of, um, of future lockdowns. Um, one thing that I think is common to all human beings, no matter what age or, uh, or where we live, Peter, is we don't like being told we can't do something, um, especially if it's something that we've been able to do without even thinking about before. So um, certainly not everyone has moved, but some people have sort of said um, the reality is, is that there could be restrictions imposed on me for the rest of my life, and I want to take some control of that. So if they're living in a big congested city, I guess that always increases the potential for further lockdowns and restrictions. Um, and they might choose to relocate to somewhere where it doesn't mean there won't be a lockdown, but there's a diminished risk of that. Um, others who might have previously enjoyed an inner city apartment lifestyle, for example, suddenly go, I'm not really attracted to that. I want, I want open space. So, you know, I want, I want this sort of stuff. So um, if you work from home, um, you do have some flexibility to explore that option further. Others have lost jobs. Um, some other data we're looking at, not just migration data, but um, job vacancy data. Our combined capital cities have roughly the same number of jobs today compared to a year ago, but our combined regions have 65% more jobs today than a year ago. Mm, that's very significant. And I noticed that the ABS numbers say for the last nine months, something like 32,346 people have gone to the regions and that is a faster rate than if you look at other nine month periods beforehand yes it is um but um they're going all over the country the biggest beneficiaries uh so far in the last sort of 12 months has been regional queensland followed by regional victoria then followed by regional new south wales the biggest capital city beneficiary over the last 12 months has been brisbane brisbane had sort of attracted about 10,000 people over the last 12 months that's a net figure but that's quite consistent with what Brisbane typically attracts each and every year. Yeah, you, you actually con contest the argument that everybody's going to Brisbane. Well, what's your argument about that? Uh, well, I, I live in Brisbane and, uh, you know, so I've got a vested interest. I want Brisbane to do as well as, as, as the next person. But putting bias in the way of things doesn't actually change things. We can't barrack uh, a location up. It doesn't actually influence things. Um, Brisbane, uh, nothing to do with COVID. There's less people who have always lived in Brisbane than regional Queensland. So unlike um, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, where a lot of their respective state populations live in the capital city, Queensland's actually a very decentralised state. So there's always been more who lived in the regions in Queensland and 
internal migration, the regions have always attracted more people from other states than what Brisbane itself has. Yeah, you're also arguing that this is not a fad linked to the coronavirus. You're saying things have changed forever. What's the strength of yes. your argument? What's your argument? Yeah, well, as I said, the official data shows that the exodus from capital cities is not uh, not new because of COVID. It's been something that's growing for some time. Different strokes for different folks, Peter. For some people, the shift is driven by housing affordability. Um, for others, it's uh, that employment opportunity. Um, most regional economies are performing better than capital city economies. So whether they're moving there because they're taking a job promotion or whether they're moving there because where they, where they were working, that job is no longer there. Um, and some of it is directly related to COVID. Um, as I said, they, they want a different lifestyle now. Okay, mate, this is all very interesting demographic discussion between a property junkie like you and an economist like me. But the people yeah. watching this show really don't give a toss unless it gets down to what's it going to mean for house prices in capital cities and house prices in those target areas that have become unbelievably popular, which I will name later on in this interview because you've actually put it in your nice little story. Yeah, look, we need to always keep things in perspective. It's so easy for all of us to just focus on what I call the metric of the moment, in this case, COVID. Property markets are not a germ. There's a whole, it's, an individual property market's like one big jigsaw puzzle with lots and lots of pieces. And, and all those pieces that were there 12 months ago before COVID, you know, each individual property market will still be influenced by all those pieces. COVID's just one extra piece that we need to take into account. Um, we feel very confident that in this calendar year, Certainly at least seven out of eight capital cities will produce price growth um, and quite likely eight out of eight. But I think there might be four or five capital cities this year that will actually see double digit price growth. But we're going to see even bigger growth outside of our capital cities, not just because, not, not just because of COVID and internal migration, but because the volume of supply listed for sale in many of our regions is much lower than capital cities. The economies are stronger and the local confidence is stronger. Well, let me just take one very famous regional area where I know house prices have gone through the roof, and that is Byron. Um, a lot of Victorians, I know, in fact, I, I have a friend who lived in um, uh, around near Brighton, um, and uh, he was in Byron when the, when the second lockdown was on, and he was so frustrated, he, yep. bought, he bought a place in Byron, and he sold his place in Brighton, and he didn't go back home. So, so effectively, a place like Byron, the prices have gone through the roof. So my question is, I know in the city when people ask me about what are the, the suburbs that have potential, I often say, and you can correct me if it's not the right thing to say, but if you look at the really popular suburbs, and I remember when I was younger, we bought in Paddington, and we started seeing that Darlinghurst grew, and then Redfern, and suburbs you wouldn't have thought, there's nearly like the next suburb on often gets a ripple effect. Does the same thing, do you think, happen in the region? So if Byron becomes unbelievably pricey, people will start looking at Lennox Head, Evans Head, Kingscliff and all those sorts of things. Will we see a ripple effect in the regions as well? There is such a thing as a ripple effect. Um, but for anyone looking to invest in, you know, in and around Byron or anywhere in Australia, I'd suggest that um, given the cost of buying property, you need to consider a lot more things than just the ripple effect. But it, but it is real. And I guess when you get a big enough critical mass that have increased interest in, whether it's Byron or anywhere else, um, those who are last of the party always end up paying more than those who are first of the party. And in some cases, uh, they can't afford the 
the new price, so they will compromise and accept um, the next bit, next biggest thing. So in Byron's case, we've already seen really, really strong performance, not just last year, but for the last five or six years in places like Coffs Harbour and Ballina, which are nearby to, uh, to, to, to Byron. So uh, Byron's a great case study, though, Peter. Um, it is officially the best-performed property market in all of Australia over the last 10 years, um, and a big reason for its success was actually work from home. We're talking a lot about work from home since COVID, but what really drove Byron over the last 10 years is a lot of people, um, executives on big salaries who relocated and lived in Byron and then commuted via plane into the Sydney or Melbourne for a board meeting or something like that. Now today, Byron, uh, most Australians can't afford that, but there are comparable high quality lifestyle locations like Byron, but the 400 or 500,000 purchase price. Yeah, yeah. Okay, remember, this would have been probably 20 years ago when uh, I was watching CNBC and this was coming out of the UK, uh, it was, so it would have been late afternoon in Australia, and uh, they were talking to a guy called Bill so-and-so, who was a, a world-renowned foreign exchange expert, and he lived in Byron Bay, and they put on the map of Australia, Byron Bay. It was the only city that they were like, I thought, this is a new world when you know, someone can actually be you know, broadcasting into the UK on basically an American uh, business network from Byron Bay. And that was, and of course, it's just grown at like topsy ever since. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some comparative, uh, you know, Byron Bays in other, other states and territories um, in Tasmania, whether it's Hobart or beautiful regions like Launceston and Burnie, uh, Western Australia, it's places like Bustleton. A lot of people over the last 12 months, mm. because of COVID, have relocated from Perth. Um, and gone a couple of hours south to live in a probably a similar location to where I'm standing uh, talking to you, but in Western Australia. Um, but it's also tree chains locations. Uh, places like Orange have just gone absolutely crazy. Um, Bendigo is extremely popular for someone who might have lived in Melbourne, but has relocated to uh, more affordability and more open space. Yeah. I, I, I got your list here. Adelaide Hills, Aubrey, I, I drove through Aubrey on Tuesday as I escaped the the, um, the uh, Melbourne lockdown, the Dan Andrews lockdown. That's really growing like nobody's business. Ballarat, uh, Ballon, you just said, Barossa. Um, you've got Byron, Coffs, Dubbo, Geelong, Kingscliff, Launceston, Mildura, Mount Gambier, Newcastle, uh, Wagga and Orange, as you said. And the Gong, the Gong is popular still, Wollongong. Yeah, the gong is. The gong struggled a bit a couple of years ago, but uh, I think what we're seeing in the gong is a lot of people uh, still have close connections to Sydney but realise they don't necessarily have to be right in Sydney. Yeah. And whether they're relocating to Wollongong or Newcastle, they're still in close uh, distance if they need to get back there. Now, one last thing, mate. You, you point out the importance of looking at job vacancies and, and what, what, what is, if, if maybe, if people are looking at job vacancies, does it give you an idea of what the future house price movements might be? Um, it's one, one of several really important bits of information. It's what we call a leading indicator. Mm. Obviously, um, you know, you're a business owner, I'm a business owner, and we know that there's a lot of thought that goes into before we decide to create a new position. It's not something that we do overnight, but, but once we've made that decision, then we typically advertise for it. So if we've got a lot of, um, we've got a location that has a big increase in the number of jobs advertised, that's a suggestion, amongst other things we look at, that there's a lot of local confidence in the economy, 
and it's local confidence that um that you need for increased buyer activity because before we buy the asset or the property we need to buy the debt and there's not that many people that rush out and buy that debt if they're lacking in confidence so economic um material we we um process more of that than anything else even though we're focusing on investing in property yeah in fact next time we talk simon we should go through what you think are the the key indicators that people should look at before they select an area, particularly if they are going to buy it from an investment point of view. Um, you know, like a, a person who might be thinking about buying an investment property in Byron, finding it's too expensive, and then thinking, well, where do I go next that might actually have some potential? That could be a good spot for you and me to talk about next time we get together. Love to do it. All right, mate. That's Simon Presley, the founder of propertyology.com.au. Have a great day at Newsome, mate. Thanks, Peter. All the best. All right, joining me now is Yingyi and Cheng from Coolabar Capital. And she's uh, a really uh, an expert on the bond market and, and where interest rates are, where they might be going. Of course, anyone in the property market is very keen to be comfortable about what's going to happen with interest rates. Yingyi Yan, thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks, Peter, for having me on. Okay, let's just go and, and talk about what you're thinking the Reserve Bank might do over the next two to three years. Yeah, that's a, that's a very extensive amount of time, Peter. Um, but look, I think, you know, just given, given this, their objectives, and we've spoken about this before with respect to the RBA needing to meet their inflation and employment objectives. Yeah. So thus far, they're obviously behind on their inflation sort of targets. You know, we're definitely not at the 2 to 3% sort of band that they envisage us being. Um, and in order for them to sort of get to that 2 to 3% inflation, they really need wage inflation. Um, and currently, you know, with the unemployment rate where it is, um, you know, we need to get to a level to bring that um, unemployment rate down towards the non-accelerating rate of, of employment. So that is probably in the RBA's mind around circa like around four and a half percent. And we're not there yet. So what they need to do is we need to then sort of create the jobs we need to prov continue providing sort of stimulus. Um, in terms of what the RBA can do, look, the policy tools are mostly exhausted in terms of the cash rate. You know, the, we already have the RBA cash rate at 0.1% and they've expressed the fact that they don't want to move to negative rates. So we're already at the effective lower bound there. In terms of the term funding facility, um, we may have spoken about this before last year. So the term funding facility is whereby they can lend to the banks out to three years at a you know, a very discounted rate. Um, and that rate is currently 0.1%. So the banks are awash with liquidity. Um, and the banks, frankly speaking, haven't drawn upon this term funding facility since October last year, mm. right? So, you know, if the banks are not drawing upon this facility and we're already at the effective lower bound in cash rates, what else can they do? And what we saw, they, um, what we saw the RBA do last year was, you know, in November, they started doing QE where they committed to buying $100 billion of Commonwealth and state government bonds um, over the next six months. That program finishes in April. Um, and, you know, earlier this month, they announced that they would do another round of QE. So QE 
Um, and the reason I touch upon that, you know, QE1 and QE2.0, um, and that's whereby they've committed to, you know, another $100 billion. So explain to my viewers how QE, this quantitative easing, and you've said there's been one and there's been two and there might be a third, how does that actually get money into the economy to keep interest rates low? Yeah, so look, quantitative easing is not a particularly sort of directed tool. So it doesn't go direct. It's, you know, unlike fiscal policy where you can really, you know, put money into the hands of, you know, individuals and businesses. With quantitative easing, um, what you're doing is it involves the purchases of, you know, in this case, Commonwealth government bonds and state government bonds. And the objective of that is really to get the, to lower the yield on these bonds, right? And so lowering the yield means that you're lowering the interest rate. And the idea behind that is that if we can lower the yield um, at which these state governments and the Commonwealth government issues their debt, that lowers their costs of borrowing, which means that they can have a cheaper source of funds to then create programs and actually stimulate the economy. Yep. Because, you know, what we've seen with COVID is that a lot of, um, you know, the private sector has been impaired in the sense that people aren't necessarily, you know, going out and spending money, although, you know, obviously, um, you know, retail sales are what it is. Um, and there's a lot of online shopping that's taking place so the dynamics are different there but what you know what some businesses are hesitant about is necessarily sort of you know creating new jobs for example because they're a bit still uncertain about what the economy could look like you know six months a year down the track so we really need the government to actually spend and create programs to create jobs. So for example, the state governments can, you know, create infrastructure. These are much more longer dated sort of, you know, programs that will sustain job growth to really get that um, employment up and therefore push the unemployment rate down towards that non-accelerating rate of unemployment. Yeah. So, so for people who are interested in Say, or for example, they might borrow or think about borrowing to buy a house. You know, what, what you're kind of implying is that the Reserve Bank is actually creating a very positive economic environment where at the same time, interest rates are likely to stay low for a long time, which is not what we usually ex we expect, that when we get strong growth, we find interest rates start creeping up and then eventually chokes it off. But you seem to be implying that this is going to be a very special uh, episode in the history of interest rates and economic yeah. growth. Yeah, so look, until, and I think, you know, it's, it's fairly clear from what the RBA said yeah. that because they've undershot inflation um, for a while, they're willing to let inflation, you know, potentially overshoot, mm. or at least they're implying that they're, they'll be comfortable with inflation overshooting when we do see that inflation. Um, and what, you know, Guy DeBell, who, um, you know, is the assistant governor, what he's also said is that, you know, if anything, they'll err on the side of caution. So they'll err on doing arguably too much QE rather than too little. Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, I, I know you don't tend to get into the controversial area of, what property prices are going to do, but your your colleague and founder Chris Joy loves <laughs> to, to do that, and I'm sure you you understand what 
the, the company view is on property prices. So what, yeah. is, what is the outlook for property prices? Look, I mean, we are expecting um, house prices to rise another, you know, 10 to 20%. We're quite bullish on housing. And frankly speaking, that's because, you know, we've seen the property market really, really, really hot at the moment. And that continues to be the case. I mean, anecdotally as well, like I'm hearing that in Queensland, particularly in, you know, parts of like Brisbane, that, you know, there's not enough housing supply. So there's a lot of, you know, interstate movement, which is pushing things higher up there. A lot of people obviously moving up to the Sunshine State. Um, and therefore, as a result, there's not enough housing around. And, you know, the market's crazy. And, I, you know, we both live in Sydney and things are going extremely well. You know, auction clearance rates are extremely sort of healthy. Um, and I think, you know, also, the New South Wales government is obviously proposing to move away from, you know, that lumpy stamp duty, um, like that one-off lumpy at the start, to move towards more of a land tax, sort of a almost an annuity-style sort of revenue stream for them, um, which will make it much more affordable. Because, frankly speaking, stamp duty is almost like a another deposit in itself for a lot of buyers. Um, so if we can reduce that amount and actually spread it over, you know, multiple years, um, that removes one of the biggest uh, roadblocks for a lot of particularly first home buyers. Yeah, okay. So, so the outlook for interest rates remains low. The outlook for property prices remains uh, on, the, on the up. Yeah. Um, um, the, I, I know you don't make predictions around economic growth, but the implication is we're looking at some periods of pretty serious economic growth over the next uh, one to two years? Yes, and that, that's the objective because we need that growth. We need to take out any sort of slack from the economy in order to create that sort of inflation. Yeah. You know, that's not to say, you know, inflation won't be an issue or a concern in the future, and it, but it may appear in like, say, five years' time, um, at which point, you know, you know, we've spoken about this many times. Um, this is why we don't have any interest rate duration or what we call fixed rate risk in our portfolios and not in that Switzer high yield fund that we run um, for Switzer. And the reason behind that is because in a rising rate environment, um, which is, you know, what happens when you start to get inflation because you have a central bank that wants to hold inflation, um, fixed rate bonds sell off. So whereas at the moment, we're not going to see, you know, duration, uh, what we call duration on fixed rate risk run anywhere, you know, too dramatically because the RBA is going to be holding rates. They're not going to be cutting rates further. And in fact, what we've seen in the interest rate markets is that, you know, the market's already getting ahead of itself. They're actually pricing in what we call the reflation trade. Mm. So in the US, in anticipation of all this stimulus coming out of the Biden government, um, you know, we've seen what we call, you know, 10-year uh, US treasuries sell off dramatically, i.e. the yield, um, the yield push higher, and therefore the yield, what we call the yield curve, um, steepen and that's you know affected our market as well because you know, obviously the aussie aussie interest rate market is also driven by expectations around the u.s market yeah. as well so markets are already getting ahead of themselves on that reflation trade and actually fixed rate bonds have had a very volatile period 
in the last couple of months. Do you think that there could be a, a real butting of the heads of central banks versus, you know, the, the, the bond markets themselves? Uh, yes, potentially, because, you know, the objective of, if you think about it, the RBA is trying to push the yields on Aussie government bonds lower, Mm. but, you know, and where they're buying is five to 10 year government bonds. And yet, you know, our government bond yields are pushing higher because of what the market's doing. Yeah. So, you know, they can't control that, obviously, but there is, I'm sure there is potentially quite a bit of angst around that. Yeah. So you, you did bring up the Switzer higher yield fund. So how, yeah. how, how has it been performing? Yeah, I mean, it's done, it's done exceptionally well. Um, I mean, obviously, Inception was the 18th of December 2020, so um, it's still afresh. However, you know, as you know, you've known Cooler Bar for quite a long time. We've been, you know, our inception um, on our first strategies was 2012, for example. So we've got a very strong track record. So since inception, so since the Switzer High Yield Fund's inception, the portfolio has done uh, 0.52% versus the benchmark of the RBA cash rate plus 1.5%, which only did 0.19%. So what we call the alpha, um, or the excess return or the alpha has been 0.33%. Um, in the month of January, so the 1st of January to the 31st of January, uh, the Switzer high yield portfolio has done 34 basis points or 0.34% versus the benchmark of 0.13%. So in that month alone, there's been 0.2% of our performance there. Okay, and so on an annual basis, what are you guys trying to, to uh, I'm not saying you're guaranteed to do it, but what's the goal and what have the first few months, has the first few months actually made, made you think this goal is possible? Uh, well, look, the benchmark, the benchmark is the overnight cash rate, which plus one half percent. So that's, you know, 0.1% at the moment. And you know, the ben- that makes the benchmark 1.6%. Okay. So look, already in the month of January, we've had about, you know, 0.2% of our performance. But obviously, um, as I like to remind everyone, um, past performance is not a guide to future returns. But all I can say is the, you know, the benchmark is 1.6%, um, given where the overnight cash rate is. And in the month of January, we've had 0.2% of our performance. So, you know, whether you want to annualise that or not, um, I'll leave it to you. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. yes, again, past performance is no guide no. to future returns. That's right. So, um, and, and I, think, I think the bottom line is this, you know, this is not, a, a fixed deposit of the bank, so there's no guarantees. But you guys, tell, tell my viewers what you're invested in in this fund because they, they, they tend to be very secure type uh, uh, investments. Yeah, so look, the philosophy that we have um, at Coolabar and particularly with respect to the Switzer High Yield Fund is we only focus on entities that are you know, highly rated that have very little intrinsic credit risk. So, you know, this would include oligopolies or monopolies 
and entities that have either an implicit or explicit government guarantee. So examples of, you know, um, the types of issuers um, that we would invest in would include, for example, the Aussie major banks, um, you know, someone like a Woolworths or a Coles, very strong oligopolies, um, you know, Optus, Singtel. So we're very conservative in the types of credit risks that we put in the portfolio. And also, by the way, a large proportion of the portfolio is also in, you know, state government bonds as well. Um, so, you know, we are very active in how we manage things. So we're also not a traditional buy and hold to maturity sort of investor. So in typically in fixed income, you see a lot of um, and managers that try to drive returns through giving you more fixed rate risk, or they give you more credit risk, or they give you more illiquidity risk. What we're doing at Coolabar is we're trying to minimize those sorts of risks. So, you know, average credit rating, um, you know, tends to be either, you know, A to AA. Um, in the case of uh, this particular portfolio, the average credit rating typically is probably around A. Um, and what we're doing there is we're seeking to look for bonds that are what we call this price. So we're looking for bonds that are paying too much interest after you adjust for all the risk factors. So, you know, after you adjust for its credit rating, its turn to maturity, the liquidity of the bond, you know, where does it, the bond sit in the capital structure, the industry of the issuer. And after adjusting for, you know, all of the risk factors, some of which I mentioned, um, what we'll do is we'll look to buy those bonds that are paying too much interest, as long as we're comfortable with the underlying credit risk. And then as that interest rate or credit spread drops towards fair value, we sell it for a capital gain. So much like your active equities manager, but in fixed income and really concentrating on highly rated securities issued by entities that I mentioned to you, Peter. Well, Ying Yi and Cheng, you really make it sound exciting. And, and that's, <laughs> that's really hard for the bond market, let me tell you. Look, thanks for, <laughs> so thanks for joining us on the program. We'll talk Thank to you, you very much, in Peter. a few weeks' time. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. If you think you need some help in building your wealth and you don't think you can do it yourself, Always remember we have a financial planning business. Just go to switzeradvisory.com.au.